I would encourage people to be careful with this because this can very easily fall into, well, my partner's just better at doing the dishes, so they're just going to do it. And I'm just no good at doing the dishes. I'm just no good at taking out the trash. I'm just no good at like making the bed in a particular way because that's another toxic dynamic that could come up is kind of the like either unintentional or sometimes intentionally not doing a task very well because then you won't be asked to do it again. Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're not your mother. <laughs> Just kidding. We actually are. You're all our little babies. <laughs> now, the topic for today is that sometimes in relationships where two or more people live together, one can get stuck doing the majority of the household tasks and emotional labor. In other words, kind of being the archetypal mother role. So today we're going to be talking about the unfair division of labor that sometimes happens within households, how toxic that can really be to relationships, as well as some tips to help change those patterns that cause this inequality to happen. Yeah, I I, I was thinking about this just because when I have been living with my partner and basically only seeing him for, you know, the last three months while we've been social distancing and kind of staying inside here, it's sort of seemed like I've become very domestic and taken over many roles, like doing the dishes every single day. I'm the one who goes out and like gets all the groceries and stuff. And oh, I was see, getting... I've I've oh, become yes? domestic in the sense that I'm knitting a sock. Oh, well, that's very <laughs> domestic as well. I wish I could knit, but I can't. Um yeah, and, and it was funny because I was getting really angry about this and kind of fed up. And then I came home after getting some groceries and like all of the dishes were done and like the sink was cleaned. And he was like, oh, I, I realized how much you were doing this lately. And I felt like I should help, which was very nice. And so uh-huh. that that was really kind of him to do. Uh, but I did think, you know, maybe other people are out there right now having a hard time with this as well sometimes. And and feeling like, hey, maybe I should figure out how this division of labor can become a little bit more equal. So have you all read this article, uh, She Divorced Me Because I Left My Dishes in the Sink? It came I mean, out in was, 2016. It was not a famous article that I was aware of, but I did read it when I, you sent me the link. Yeah, I only read it when you sent it to me oh, for really? this episode. No, I hadn't I thought seen it, was it before. Like, it kind of went viral like back oh, in 2016. It? Yeah, I wonder. There was a I lot went... going on in 2016. I oh, must have missed it. Oh, I know. Yeah, I've, absolutely right. I've forgotten 2016 entirely. Just blocked yeah, it out. Let's just <laughs> pretend like it never happened. We're, we're going to soon add 2020 to that list. But yeah. Um, well, it, so what it was is it was this guy wrote it after his wife had filed for divorce from him. And he says that she filed for divorce because he left my dish, he left his dishes by the sink instead of doing them or putting them away. He just would like leave them there and leave. Uh, and he f- realized that he felt just this entitlement to his wife's love and her care um, simply because they exchanged vows and became man and wife. And so that to him gave him all of this entitlement. Uh, and he told himself over and over again, like, if my wife just told me what I needed to do, then I would do it. But she didn't want to have to tell me. She didn't want want to have to be my mother. She wanted me to figure it out for myself and for us to be partners, not like parent-child kind of relationship. So it was interesting. Uh, and I remember reading it and thinking, huh, I wonder how I feel about that because we are this re- this podcast that talks about communication and they clearly didn't have good communication. So I'm like, should I be thinking that that's wrong, that he actually should have figured out a way to talk to her and she should have figured out a way to talk to him? I don't know. What what did the two of you think when reading it? Yeah, this this article goes so many different places. I found it yeah. to be quite 
quite rambly, actually, in terms of just... Yeah, I think he made good points. It was just kind of all over the place a little bit. Yeah. It was clearly like a, a dump, like after... Yes, you know, right. yeah, just definitely, say, I'm gonna, definitely. Yeah, I'm going to put it all out there and not really be very coherent in where I'm going. Right. Cohesive. I do think something that, that's interesting, even just in the way you described that right there and and his sort of thing about like, well, if she had only told me, then, then I would have done it. Mm-hmm. And... It's one of those things where it's like, yes, one could make the argument that there was a communication problem there, either her not feeling able to communicate directly or him not listening when she was communicating, like not getting it, even if he was listening. But then on the other side, there's also kind of this other problem, which comes from culturally how we're taught to be men and women specifically if we're raised in those roles and those ways of thinking is that really a lot of this shouldn't be her job to communicate to him, but he acknowledges that. Yes. No, I know. I'm just saying for the sake of our discussion here, I think that's part of what's really interesting about the discussion at all, you know? Well, and I guess he realized that that, as Dedeker saying, like finally at the end before, like when it was too late, ultimately. Yeah. I think in this article, he makes two very important points that I think are relevant to this bigger, broader discussion. One of them being that point, you know, that you just highlighted Jace, that it's not as simple as like, oh, you should just ask me what you need done around the house and I'll do it, you know, and it's your fault for not asking me because I didn't know, you know, he recognizes like that wasn't the problem because she was expecting me to also take responsibility in thinking about what needs to be done and acknowledging what needs to be done and then Mm -hmm. doing it, you know, instead of just waiting for orders from the top, essentially. And then the second important point that he makes in this article being about that, the fact that like leaving the dish outside the dishwasher is not about the dish or the glass you know, it's about his wife feeling respected and feeling like he cares about the kind of home that she wants and that he has listened to her requests and that he respects her, you know? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Which and I thought one was yeah. really hit home for me in some roommate relationships that I've had too, mm-hmm. where their explanation for not doing the things that I request in terms of cleanliness or whatever is based in some sort of like, well, I'm going to logic it away. And he kind of talks about this in the article, too, where he acknowledges the fact that like for him, he's like, well, yeah, I put it there. I've got a ton of reasons to put it there and not put it in the dishwasher because I might use it again. You know, like there's not an urgent need to do that. You know, right. all these things. I don't care unless guests are coming over. It's right. okay it doesn't, it doesn't for me glasses on the countertop. Yeah, right. And for her, though, it was like, OK, so you're not willing to do this very tiny thing out of a sign of respect and affection and care for me. And when he put it that way, I was like, that explains why I got so frustrated and why I would get even more angry when he would try to logic away his reasons (laughs) for leaving stuff out when we lived together. Mm. Uh, And then I know that I've absolutely been on the other side of that. And I think especially when I've lived with, with female partners, it's so easy to fall into those roles, even when we're aware of them. Right. Yeah, I think so much of it is um, we've talked about this on past episodes before, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later on in the episode that when it comes to labor divisions, there is like that labor of like, like the the practical logistics of like, we got to clean the bathroom, we got to clean the kitchen, we got to figure out who's picking up the kids from school at what time, like we got to, you know, decide who's getting the groceries and stuff like that. But then there's the other layer of like, who keeps all this in their mind of like, when was when was the last time the bathroom was cleaned? And like, who has that timeline in their mind? When was the last time that we picked up more eggs or whatever, and having that timeline in mind that that's often this kind of invisible labor. Sometimes it gets roped into under the banner of emotional labor. Some people argue that definition. Um, But like the mental load is what it's usually referred to. And that tends to also default onto women or the mom in the house or, you know, whoever it is that takes on that role. I remember being a kid and 
looking for things in like the refrigerator or the cupboard for food and being like, where is it? I can't find it. Like, mom, where is it? And she's like, you're not looking hard enough. And I would get so annoyed <laughs> mom, and frustrated. My mom would give me that right. line all the time. Really? But she was right because I want to say that to my partner now. I'm like, it's in there. Look harder. Like, I know it's there because I literally remember where I put it last time in the cupboard or in somewhere. So it's there. Like, just look slightly harder. Like, take That's a really little funny. bit more time. <laughs> I would get the same exact message from my mom. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> that is funny. It's so, yeah. It's, it's interesting, though, that that response, though, is kind of coming from a place of like, why don't you step up and figure it out? Yeah. Almost like this. And we'll also talk about this later, too. But this idea that in the process of getting someone else to take more responsibility and be more proactive, part of that is letting them struggle through it and figure it out. And not just being like, oh, okay, fine, I'll do it I'll for you. I'll find it. I'll do it. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Totally. So that's interesting that both of your moms took that approach there. They did. Yeah. That's <laughs> well, something I know that's, that's come up um, between me and Alex recently, particularly when it comes to figuring out like what we're going to make for dinner is that I get really frustrated because sometimes he comes to me like, well, well, what do we have? What do we have in the house? And I want to be like, go look. Like, <laughs> you figure that out. It's right. literally no, three feet away. <laughs> you can yeah. also keep like the mental inventory of like what food is in the house. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that is yeah. funny. Goodness. Mm-hmm. All right. So we want to start out this episode by talking about some stits and stats, one of our favorite things to do. Uh, but first, we want to give a little caveat here about the stits and stats and also about this whole episode. And basically, that's that... All the data about this, almost all the data about this is heterosexual cisgender couples, right? That's that's who gets studied the most. And this problem of unequal division of labor is certainly not unique to cishet couples. However, they are much more prone to it being this invisible problem, kind of like we've talked about, or like this rut that you fall back into because of the way that we are raised and acculturated into these gender roles in this very invisible way. And so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about some research specifically on trans and non-binary people and how it's a little bit different. But regardless of that, you know, keep in mind as we're talking about this, if we bring up gender roles for males and females specifically, we're saying that because those are the roles that are most prone to kind of falling into these patterns because our culture drills that into us so heavily. But the principles and all of this can apply to everybody. So just keep that in mind and kind of see how this might apply in your life. Yeah. So let's dive into some stits and stats on this. So we all know the old adage about how it takes a village to raise a child. I do believe that that's true. Um, However, in Many heterosexual and I'm willing to bet also homosexual monogamous households in Western culture um, were really set up for there to be only two people to do the bulk of the child rearing, um, as well as two people to tackle all the household work and two people to tackle the work of bringing in money. And today, a lot of people do actually go to work at the same time. They'll have men and women or two men, two women, whatever your configuration is going to work instead of just one person doing that while the other person stays at home and does the child rearing. Uh, Double income these days. Exactly. Uh, But there was this longitudinal study of 8,500 heterosexual couples done between 2010 and 2011 by the University College in London. Oh, no, it's not in London. It's just University College London. I'm assuming Uh, it is also in London. Probably. I'm assuming too, yes. (laughs) But they found that when both partners worked, women were still five times more likely than men to spend more than 10 hours a week doing housework. Uh, yeah, yeah that, that same study also found that 93%, 93% of all women, whether they worked or not, did the bulk of domestic duties like childcare and housework. And that women do around 16 hours of housework to a man's six. So this 16 is, is a lot. More That's than in double. 20, yeah. This is almost it's in 2010, times. 2011, but still. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't um, I didn't pull the source on this specifically, but I have heard of a study also that says that in addition to this, women tend to underestimate how many hours of household work they do and men tend to overestimate how many hours of household work that they do. Um, 
So I, I was reading this really funny book of essays um, by Blythe Robertson. She wrote this book called How to Date Men and When You Hate Men. Um, I promise it's a lot more funny and light than the title <laughs> makes it sound. It's all comedy essays, um, okay. feminist comedy essays. But she talks about the fact that like when she uh, is ready to have a child, she only wants to do that with a man who says that he's willing to take on 70% of the work because of the fact that men tend to mm, overestimate. And I so see. she says, if I aim for someone who's willing to take on 70% of the work, then I'll probably get someone who actually takes on 50% of the work and then it'll be an equal division of labor. Wow, um, that's a big ask, but impressive. <laughs> well, I mean, it's kind of half joking, half serious is the mm-hmm. take that I get on it. Um, there I are like other, stu- other studies that also show that in households where women make the most money, men do proportionately less work, less housework than they otherwise would have if they were the ones making more money. Um, I found that really interesting. Yeah. So they find that actually in households where even women are the sole breadwinners or if they're bringing in more money that um, you would think that then that would mean that the, you know, the men would step up and maybe be taking on more of the household labor. And it's the opposite, that men actually do less Um they theorize part of this being that like a lot of women, first of all, I mean, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but like women are often naturally shoehorned into the role of just becoming the, the default expert about the kids in the house, you know, and so the person who knows where everything is and knows what everyone needs combined with they think that there's also this kind of blowback effect of women also feeling guilty for being working outside the home, like to the extent of being the primary breadwinner and then feeling the need to kind of compensate for that, you know, for being like this terrible mom who's away from their kids because they're too busy running a company or whatever. Um, So I think there's a lot of other factors that go into that, but that's some of the ones that have been tossed around. Yeah. And during this current time, we're talking about COVID-19 that we're all currently living in in 2020. Women are 16 percent more likely to be laid off or furloughed than men. And this affects women and people of color even more than it does just men in general. Uh, And this is interesting because a lot of women of color are frontline workers or essential workers that have to stay in their businesses and do things like that. But then if they're not, then they tend to get laid off at a higher rate than people, white people do. Um, And women of color are also often the breadwinners in their households, but they are right now more likely to lose their jobs and have to provide their own child care because a lot of places are shut down right now and not providing childcare. Yeah. And even in households where there is a fairly equal division of housework, like we were talking about before, that mental load or emotional labor of keeping track of what needs to get done, what groceries you need to get, which ones we have, knowing where everything is in the house, researching doctors, remembering who the kid's doctor is, making appointments, you know, all of this falls much more on women than on men. Yeah. And we talked about that a little bit before. I I did find a good piece of information that millennial men, and I'm assuming Gen Z men as well, are trying to step up a little bit. And a study done by the Boston Consulting Group found that millennial men are much more likely to step up and carry more of the load of domestic chores than older generations of men. So that's some silver lining right there. Yeah. You're not off the hook, millennial men. Slowly, Sorry. No. Slowly, <laughs> slowly but surely. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, So let's talk about how this affects homosexual and non-binary couples or same-sex couples. Um, It's interesting to note that in particularly non-binary and trans households, the division of labor does seem to be more egalitarian. Um, There was a small study that was done by Penn State University of um, 163 transgender and non-binary parents. And overall, the study found that transgender non-binary parents reported dividing their household and childcare labor in egalitarian ways, with this division being uninfluenced by gender or couples design. Um, I'm guessing this, it sounds like this study was mostly based on reporting, Emily? It was, yes, it was mostly based on reporting. And it was like 183 couples. It was pretty small in comparison to the other one, which was like 8,500 people. So 
right. yeah, different. But I'm glad that somebody did a study on it at all. That was great. And this is from the study uh, itself. It says that one explanation for these findings is that transgender non-binary people conceptualize gender, gender role expectations, and sexual identity in a more fluid and dynamic fashion. This greater gender and sexual identity flexibility could lead TGNB couples to negotiate and decide the division of unpaid labor based on personal preference, similar to cisgender same-sex couples, and in contrast with cisgender heterosexual couples. So I guess that implies that cisgender same-sex couples also have more egalitarian practices, which is not surprising to me, but yes. It reminds me of, um, uh, there's this really famous interview that Dan Savage did, uh, where he's talking about negotiating sex and negotiating consent and things like that specifically, and talking about the fact that like with a same sex couple, that he tends to find there's just a lot more willingness to negotiate and talk about sex and like, what are we going to do? And what are your preferences? And what do you like? And what do you don't like? And what kind of sex can we have? And what kind of sex are we not going to have? Um, Versus heterosexual couples where it tends to just like be not a lot of communication from the outside about what you want. And we all kind of fall into these defaults because of all the messaging we get around how sex between heterosexual people should be. Um, And it makes me think of that, that like if you don't come to a relationship on this particular rigid track of what your gender role is, even if you're trying to consciously go against that, but like you're still not necessarily on that track, that I imagine that that would lay the groundwork for much more, again, conversations around just preferences and what you like to do, and what you don't like to do and what tasks you're good at and what tasks you're not good at and collaborating instead of just kind of based on like the gender roles and what you saw your parents do and, and things like that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And that's I mean, so so why are we talking about this at all? And it's basically that it is something huge and that's invisible to most people. Uh, And this is something like like the fact that we're saying that most men will overestimate how much work they're doing and women will underestimate it. It's things like that and this sort of invisible emotional labor or mental load that's taken up by like organizing the household and things like that, that, that this can be a problem, even if neither of you realize it for quite a while until it's become so much of a problem that it explodes and blows up, or you're just living your whole life with one of the two of you being a lot more overburdened and stressed even if that doesn't blow up your relationship. In either case, that's a bad outcome. In my opinion, I would rate those as bad outcomes. Definitely. Um, And so what's important to remember here is that this is an important issue, right? Studies show that couples fight about chores just as much as they fight about money. We've often talked on this show before about how money disagreements are one of the leading causes of divorce. Um, As far as fights in couples, Chores is also one of the big top, top hits, greatest hits of fights. (laughs) And when someone is not motivated or just isn't stepping up to do the work to help their partner around the house or with childcare or other forms of mental labor, to them, it might just seem like a logistical problem. But to the person not receiving that help, it has a more, a deeper, more emotional meaning like you don't care about me. You don't respect me enough to help out. I'm undervalued. I'm unappreciated. The work, you think the work that I do doesn't matter, that only your work is the important work. Uh, I can't rely on you. I can't count on you to help me. Uh, I think for, for a lot of men who really embrace their role as like men and breadwinners, knowing that your partner, if you're not helping around the house, gets the message that they can't rely on you. That feels like a little bit of a punch in the gut of like, hey, you're failing completely at the thing you think that you're doing. Yeah. And when there's this unequal division of labor and mental load and emotional labor over a long period of time in relationship, you know, that can produce things like resentment, for sure. Um, I think we're all familiar with that. Um, A loss of intimacy. Um, That can also be tied to a loss of physical intimacy as well. You know, I know a lot of women in particular talk about, you know, uh, if you feel like you're kind of slowly creeping towards just the 
the the all mother of the whole house, you know, including your partner, you don't want to have sex with that person because it feels like just another one of the kids that you're taking care of rather than your like sexy lover that you want to be seduced by, you know? And again, it's like, these are things that I think can get internalized and embodied, even if in your logical brain, in your front brain, you're like, no, 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 I shouldn't feel this way. Like, no, no, no. Like we're working things out. It's going to be equal, you know, stuff like that, that it's like, these things can still get embodied and can still affect the way that like your sex drive responds, for instance, um, can be things like increased stress. Um, it can influence a general characterization of how someone views the entire relationship You know, um, that if there's this ongoing sense of feeling undervalued or unappreciated, like that can bleed over into feeling like, well, my partner's just not there. My partner doesn't see me, you know, which influences other areas of the relationship as well. Um, And that can cause overall relationship withdrawal as well. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked with Hadassah Damien about money. Uh, which was a really amazing conversation. And she discussed a little bit about contributing in different ways to the household. And it it was a little hard for me because I hear these words contributing, like that contributing to the relationship, that it, it, it's like a quantifiable thing that you have, you know, all of these things that you can contribute or this much that you need to contribute and each of you needs to do it in equal ways. And I get where she's coming from. And I and I appreciated what she had to say about that. But what did you two think about it? And, and I, I guess where I'm going with this is that perhaps somebody would think like, well, if I am being the breadwinner, if I'm being the person who gives the most money and goes to work or you know, pays more in rent or something along those lines, then that means that I'm giving a lot to this relationship. So therefore, in turn, my partner needs to, you know, do more around the house in order to make up for that. How, how do we, I, I, what do we think about that? Because I don't know if I necessarily agree. Well, I thought that the answer that we got from that question, and maybe I'm uh, confusing or, 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 gaslighting myself or something like I thought the answer that we got from that was more that like this isn't like a one size fits all solution of like it naturally being like one person makes more money so the other person needs to step up and do more chores that it's going to be a little bit more of an organic process of figuring out like okay maybe this person brings in more money but like what is their work like versus what is my work like versus what needs to get done in the house and like kind of more massaging out what feels equal instead of it being necessarily like a um like, I think it's hard to come up with a one-to-one there. I think especially yeah. because the fact that, like, there have been so many studies that have found that, like, the unpaid labor of women, like, if women earned the minimum wage on the amount of unpaid labor that they do in the household, they would bring home six figures. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that was like, talked about in a lot of the articles so, I looked So up. it's like, if we want to reduce it down to it being about money versus labor, I mean, then it would be like okay, fine. Then the person who's bringing in more money still needs to do extra labor to like make up for that. Like if we're going to be so, I guess, mercenary about it and kind of just reducing it down to money versus labor. That's what I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm not saying that Hadassah was saying one thing versus the other. And and I agree that she was kind of hoping for more uh, conversation to potentially happen between couples. But it was it was just an interesting way to think about it. And I think a way that some that I know in relationships that I've had, that that's how it's thought of. It's like, well, okay, I'm bringing in more. So therefore you need to step up and do more in other ways. And that includes like taking care of the house essentially. So yeah, I I guess I just wanted to talk about that one more time a little bit with the two of you. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think we acknowledged this a little bit in that episode too, but there's, there's, you can't really just break it down and quantify it into numbers, right? Like you just can't. And we've just talked about all the reasons why that's not so clear. Uh, And so people who try to take that approach, I think you're kind of missing the whole point here. Like the point of this conversation should be to make your relationship feel better for both of you and feel right. Not to, you know, use some numbers or some justification to justify why you get to do exactly what you're doing and they just have to deal with it and do all the stuff you don't want to do. Yeah. Cause, cause there's a lot of other factors there about sure. Okay. Say, say I'm the breadwinner and I work 60 hours a week. So it's like, okay, gosh, look, I'm, I'm working so much and I'm bringing home 
all or at least most of the money for our household. Another way to look at that is go, okay, yeah, but perhaps you also love what you're doing. That 60 hours a week is fulfilling for you. And then the other partner, like their life goal wasn't to clean a house every day or to cook every day. You know, there's, there's that kind of a difference in addition to just all of that invisible labor that's going on, that's not even getting counted in this. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, if we're trying to use these sort of external models for measuring it, it just, they just don't work. They just break down. And that's just one example of the many ways that that doesn't work. Yeah. So, so yeah. (laughs) So yeah, I think we all agree. It doesn't work to try to, to try to convert it to numbers that way. Exactly. Before we move on, we are going to talk a little bit about how we can change these patterns and ways in which these patterns are already changing, like at a micro and a macro level. But first, we want to discuss some ways in which you can help support our show so that we can continue bringing it to you for free. For a long time now, we've been fans of AdamandEve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on AdamMail.com and Eve'sToys.com, which are their sites specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store, and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. So if the first half of our episode scared you into realizing that these might be patterns in your life, we want to spend the second half going over some ways that we can change these patterns, both in ourselves and also in the world at large, potentially. Uh, And let's start off, though, from the micro level of within your specific relationship. And the first thing here is to gotta start, plug ourselves to start talking about it <laughs> to do a radar <laughs> to do a radar honestly you know you can go listen to episode 147 where we talk about radar which is a framework for having these sorts of check-ins and conversations with your partner i, I love it couldn't live without it but even if I mean, you it's, don't it's, do that well i was going to say part of this whole conversation is the reason why we put household as a topic on the standard radar list Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because it's something that's easy to just be like, oh, yeah, n- nothing else to talk about. Okay, let's go on. But if it's on the list, it's like, yeah, okay, let's talk about it and make sure it's make sure it's fine. <laughs> make sure there's not yeah. something where someone's like, you know, actually, this has been bugging me or this is something or even more ideally. And I think this is what we're getting to is if you are realizing that you might be the person who is not sharing equally in this work for you to bring it up in a radar or just in general of saying, hey, I started becoming aware that this might be something that we're not treating equally and that I might be part of. Let's have a conversation about it, you know, and that could look like just talking about it, like maybe they'll right away be like, oh, my gosh, yes. Or it might be something where you have to go through and find some ways to talk about this in more detail to kind of get to the bottom of it. So this was an interesting one that I found in an article, which is to sit down each of you individually and track the time that is spent doing actual household chores and all of the planning that goes into things like everyday tasks, like 
you know, writing up to-do lists or writing up grocery lists or figuring out what you're going to eat for dinner or, you know, any of the above. Um, And then you sit down with your partner and share your findings. So I liked that idea, like actually kind of making it more um, scientific in, you know, what you're doing every single day and how long it's taking. Yeah, this is something that I've heard a similar approach just for your general productivity, which the the version that I've heard that people who do this swear by it, which is to essentially, you know, have a, a spreadsheet or a sheet or something that's marked out in 15 minute increments. Oh, wow. And every 15 minutes you write down what it is that you're doing or, or that you just did in that last 15 minutes. And the idea is you do this for like a week, say, to get this extremely accurate picture of where you're spending your time so that you can then look at it and go, gosh, I'm wasting a lot of time scrolling Facebook and not getting done the stuff I want to get done or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's normally used in sort of productivity stuff. Something like that could be really useful also for tracking what you're doing around the house because it's it's often so easy to just forget about the fact that like, oh, yeah, I cleaned up this thing or oh I folded this laundry or I, you know, cleaned some dishes. If you're kind of just doing it spread out throughout the day. I will say, though, I've never been able to complete this for productivity. I was say, I've oh, never doing been able that to do for it. a week. That's a lot. I mean, people I think swear by it. So. Say for a yeah? week. Well, oh, you're talking about the productivity thing personally. Yeah. Yeah. I'd I say think maybe this it's not is a more whole, of an estimate. Maybe it's not a whole week. Maybe it's just three days, but it's definitely like a number of days that I've, I've haven't been able to keep doing it longer than like a couple hours. <laughs> so I think if this works for you, awesome. Like do it. People I know swear by it. Also, if you can't get yourself to do that, that's also okay. I'm there with you. Well, going back to doing this with you and your partner, uh, so write down everything that you do in terms of like household stuff, emotional labor in terms of household things that you have to like track and figure out and going to buy groceries and all of that stuff, and then sit down with your partner and talk about it. And then from that discussion, try to establish ways in which the two of you can share the load and take some of the burden off of the person doing the most work. So with this, especially try not to have one person delegate responsibilities the two of you should try to problem solve and figure out together what the solution is going to be rather than just have some person be like, well, I need you to take X, Y, and Z thing because that's not a good look. Yeah, I mean, there's there's this really famous comic floating around out there by this, this um, French artist about the mental load and specifically kind of making the point that like we pay a project manager a particular salary to project manage, but the project manager isn't also then also doing the project at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um and yet we find kind of fall into these roles where women are expected to be the project manager delegating all the tasks and also doing many of those tasks at the same time. Um, yeah. And so that's why kind of the like, well, I just need my partner to ask me what to do falls apart is because like that in itself is also labor, the delegation of tasks, um, you know, figuring out who to delegate to, when, how, how to communicate it is also think- labor in itself. Ideally, I mean, the problem with that also is that it becomes somebody kind of in an authoritative power position over another person. And that's also, in my opinion, in a relationship, not somewhere that you want to be. You want, you know, unless that's the kind of relationship that you have if you're in a BDSM situation, kind of master sub or something with that. But but in certain relationships, you probably don't want two people to be like in a mother and... I don't know, kid sort of role, because that's probably not very fun or attractive to do. And so instead, if the two of you can problem solve together, that's the more ideal way to handle this kind of situation. Yeah, I know for myself that the moment I feel like a mom, I'm pissed off because I don't want to be a mom at all. Like, yeah, just at no, all. I don't I, even, exactly. Thank you. you. Know, like, <laughs> I don't want kids ever. And so I'm like, I don't want any part of this mom momification other than like our patrons and our podcast listeners because they're all my babies you know that i'm okay to be there <laughs> the podcast mom. is our baby in a very yes. in a very again kind of all mother mothership kind of distantly floating mother kind of way that's very anyway i'm gonna get back to what we're actually talking about in this episode um which is something else to think about is to figure out a way to actually step back from the tasks that your partner is taking on um 
And at least at the beginning, temper your expectations of how well that task may be achieved at first. Um, This is for all the perfectionists like me out there. This is for everybody who has been taking on the bulk of the labor or anyone who feels like they're falling into the mom role Um, is that, yeah, like when you are used to taking on all the work and also controlling how it gets done, that can be kind of the catch 22 here of like, wow, I'm so stressed that I'm taking on all this labor, but also at the same time, I don't feel like anyone else can do it or can do it in the way that I want them to do it, things like that. Um, And so, you know, I think there are many different approaches to this. And some of it is just kind of having trust and like being able to let go of a task and accepting that maybe it's not going to be perfect for the first couple times that it's done. Um, and ideally through more communication and kind of back and forth with your partner, eventually we come to a place where we find a way that this task gets done that we're both happy with to a certain extent. Um, it's also important to use meta communication um, and what you know of both of your likes and dislikes, both of your strengths and weaknesses when you're collaborating on a task. Um, so, I mean, that's things like, I don't know, I think JC and I figured out pretty on, pretty early on that like you, um, you get more joy out of vacuuming than I think <laughs> I tend to. I don't know if joy is really the right word. Maybe satisfaction. I do get um, a satisfaction from it. That's true. You get more yeah. satisfaction. I've gotten a better, I've gotten closer to that actually now that I've been here and doing more vacuuming here at Alex's place. I, I think I've gotten more of an understanding of that. Um, I would encourage people to be careful with this because this can f- very easily fall into well, my partner's just better at doing the dishes. So they're just going to do it. And I'm just no good at doing the dishes. I'm just no good at taking out the trash. I'm just no good at like making the bed in a particular way, because that's another toxic dynamic that could come up is kind of the like either unintentional or sometimes intentionally not doing a task very well, because then you won't be asked to do it again. Um, That's no good for nobody. And in terms of like anticipating your partner's needs, it can be kind of as simple as, okay, one partner is making dinner that night. And so the other partner can open up their favorite bottle of wine and like give them a glass to have during, you know, the time that they're making dinner, turn on their favorite music, something like that, something to kind of strengthen intimacy and show that you're caring about this person while they're doing something nice for you. Yeah. And then, to go back to what Dedeker was talking about, about this idea of, um, oh, well, I'm just not good at this thing or they're better at it, so they should do it. I think there's also a hidden dynamic there where with the gender roles that were taught that, that, that women will also reinforce that idea on men, that they're not any good at these things. And part of why they might not be any good at it is because they haven't been doing it. They haven't been doing it very much in their life and they haven't been doing it in your household. And so there's going to be a learning curve there that like, yes, you will probably do it better than them. But that's not the point, right? I mean, it's we like, know that you're going to do the dishwasher way better than either of us will. <laughs> oh and that's God. just yeah, a We fact. all know. That's all listeners of the show know very well. Okay. It's yes, like the only thing people know about me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guarantee you it isn't, but okay. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think that this is something I notice in a lot of heterosexual couples that I know, you know, like in, in, parents relationships or friends relationships where it's that when the man will try to take on some things or help with things one he ends up needing to ask so many questions while doing it and then she gets frustrated and is just like fuck it i'll do it it's like that's not helping her at all or he's doing it and then she's like this wasn't good enough now i need to do it myself and that it kind of then it just stops and it goes back and it's kind of i think something that we've learned in in trying to run a business and i think people who have run businesses or managed people understand it's like yeah there's going to be a bit of a process of sort of training and getting someone the understanding they need to take over something if they've never done it before and i think it's just i do want to remind us of that that part of that letting go of your perfectionism if you're letting someone else take on some tasks but then also understanding that like they need to know they they're going to have to work to become the expert because this is their job now. And then also you knowing that give them time to do that. Yeah. I think this is a good place to drop in actually. Um, so first of all, I want to recommend people uh, check out this book by Eve Rodsky called fair play, um, where she comes up with specifically like a very concrete system for tackling this with a partner. Um, she has some great suggestions and I read this interview with her and she pointed out something really interesting that like, 
in heterosexual couples, women tend to have a lot more context around tasks and what needs to be done. That's part of the mental load. And then men often end up just with like the executable part, you know, so the example she gives is that, you know, the mom sends her husband out for like, okay, this is the grocery list and we need must mustard is on that grocery list also. Um, and she knows that like, it's a very particular kind of mustard because their child is super picky and only wants like French's yellow mustard and won't have any like fancy Dijon mustard or stuff like that. Um, he doesn't have that context because he's not been involved in like making lunch for their child for the past six years or whatever. And so he just knows he goes to the store, gets the wrong kind of mustard. And then his experience is just like, oh, well, I got criticized because I got the wrong type of mustard, you know, right, and that, like that's trying also to help part and of, I just get criticism. Yeah, exactly. That's also part there. of the like mental load context thing is that like often around these tasks, there's so much context that goes into it. That's disproportionately put on women to kind of hold that in their brain um, that then further contributes to the male partner often feeling like, oh, I just can't do it right. Yeah, which then goes back to this idea of sitting down and figuring out how you can both split things up in ways where you each kind of are in charge of different things in the household rather than the old model of just, oh, well, the woman just delegates it out or, you know, whoever the person is doing it all. Yeah, that's very much the model that Erodsky goes to is kind of like a system for uh you know, kind of figuring out both everything that needs to get done and then figuring out like, okay, who is like, who is the leader on this, you know, and right. who is responsible from this task completely from start middle to finish, you know, not just like bits and pieces of this task. Um, something else that I would recommend people to do, if you Google Gottman Art of Compromise, you'll find a exercise from the Gottman Institute. It's not about household chores or labor specifically. It's more about figuring out compromise with your partner. And it's kind of a structured conversation around figuring out what are your kind of core needs, the things that are non-negotiable for you versus what are your areas of flexibility, which I think would apply really well to this conversation. It enables you to be able to say things like, okay, uh, you know, I can be flexible about like the bathroom doesn't need to be it's totally sparkling clean at the end of every day. Like I'm flexible on that. However, like my inflexible area is I can't have laundry uh, on the floor. And then it's also kind of structured questions that they give you for helping each other understand these flexible and inflexible areas so that it becomes less about my partner is just ordering me around to do this and not do that. And you get more of a sense of that context as well of why these things are important to your partner. So real quick, we're just going to talk about a couple different interactional styles that happen when people are doing tasks together. Uh, so this is from an article in The Atlantic. Um, it was regarding a study of couples preparing dinner together. And basically, they just like turned on a, a tape recorder and taped like these couples doing tasks together. Uh, and they found some very interesting things from it. But when they saw that people were collaborating well together, uh, there were four different styles of collaboration. So the first one was called silent collaboration. And that was in which both partners, they worked in the same space and went about the task at hand together. Uh, I guess without much fanfare or anything, they kind of silently work together well. Um, and then the second one is going to be one person as an expert. So that we kind of talked about a little bit, but it's in which one spouse was considered an expert or an authority on the task, either humorously or with genuine respect. Uh, so yeah, Jace is amazing at putting the dishes in there. And so Dedeker and I are learning how to do so. And so we are humorously watching him do that. And he is teaching <laughs> us. Uh, the third one is coordinating together. So bar both partners verbally organize the activity um, together and they're able to work on it together. And then the fourth one is going to be collaborating apart in which partners carried out their share of the labor in separate locations. So for example, sometimes I'll be doing the dishes, Josh has to clean the bathroom that day, for example. And so we'll be doing the housework together at the same time, but in separate locations. I can, looking at this list of these four different styles, I can envision this could be another interesting conversation to have with a partner about the ways that the two of you tend to prefer or one of you tends to prefer. Like, I'm going to go out on a limb and make a guess. What I know about Jace, I feel like, Jace, you tend to prefer the coordinating together style. And I think I tend to prefer the collaborating apart 
style when it comes to tasks, both in life and in our business and in the kitchen and things like that. <laughs> Would you think that's an accurate guess? Yeah, I'd say that was accurate. I was thinking yeah. about when we've, you know, done our cleaning days where it's like what we end up going to is generally the we coordinate who's going to do what. But then it's like we put on music and we're both kind of separate in our own areas mm. of the house going mm. through those things. Yeah. So I did just want to toss in here real quick that this is also a conversation to have and something to think about in a relationship that is more than two people as well. Assuming you all live together and that that's, you know, you are you are actually sharing the household together and potentially sharing raising kids. Um, but just that that adds another dynamic to this in in thinking about this conversation. And I guess just to be aware of what might be some of this invisible labor that's happening to just sort of bring that to mind and kind of be aware of it and try to look for it. Because often the person who's taking on more of this invisible labor might not even be aware of it. And yet they're feeling the effects of it. So just something for you as the other partners to be aware of and, and try to identify and see if there are ways that you can help with that and let them know that you, you see that and want to actually take on that, you know, role of helping if you can. Yeah. So let's talk about, uh, you know, those are our list of suggestions for things to look at at a micro level for fixing this dynamic within a specific relationship. Of course, this is also influenced by the macro level. This is influenced by our culture at large that still really wants to push us into these particular roles when it comes to who takes on what. Um, so we are starting to see more advertising companies working on taking gendered roles and stereotypes out of their ads completely. For example, the UN actually launched the Unstereotype Alliance to eradicate harmful gender-based stereotypes from advertising, including ones where women do all the housework. I imagine that also includes um, often in the same ads where women do all the housework, men are portrayed as incredibly incompetent as well. Yeah, um, it talked about that in those. Yeah, there was this comedian, Sarah Haskins, who used to do critique of specifically advertising targeted at women. And she would talk about the fact that like, when we see guys in car commercials with women, they're sexy, and they're suave, and they're mysterious, and we really want them. And then as soon as they're in a household cleaner commercial, they're slightly dumber than a dog. Yeah, basically. Like, it's <laughs> like a sitcom type role. Uh -huh. right. Yeah, yeah, which doesn't help anything. No. Uh, so if you out there have a company, if you are a part of like creating your own company in some way, then maybe encourage, I don't know, men and women to have flexible work options rather than just a normal nine to five workday. Uh, this is something that we're seeing with people working from home much more. Obviously, right now, we're in this very specific time in our lives where we're at home. A lot of people are working from home in a way that they never have before, and perhaps they will get to uh, after all of this is over as well. But yeah, just offering more flexibility to people so that you don't just have to work within these specific hours at these specific times if you still get a bunch of things done, uh, but it doesn't necessarily need to fall between the hours of nine to five, then that will offer for more flexibility and more ability to do other types of things like housework, childcare, things like that. On that note, things like flexibility in hours to be able to leave work early or come in late for things like taking kids to doctor's appointments or, you know, fixing something that broke at the house or going to children's sports practices or something like that. And then this one's cool is not just offering paternity leave, but the idea of actually making taking paternity and maternity leave mandatory, because that right there takes away that negative impact that women have in the workplace of like, oh, well, she's going to take maternity leave. So we're not going to advance her as much. And instead, um, it's like, no, every employee here, if they have a kid, they have to take their maternity or paternity leave so that they can take care of that kid. And there's not this gender imbalance there in the workplace. So finally, we want to just throw out some caveats and pitfalls that we can get into when we're asking for help or when we want to make things more egalitarian within our 
relationships. So The Atlantic, this article that I've been referring to a couple times, um, it talks about a thing called demand withdraw. So we talk about pursuit and withdraw a long time or a it's lot of it's times. It's the same exact thing. Yeah, it's essentially the same thing, except for like it's demanding something and then withdrawing because of it. So this essentially is one member of the two of you. So one partner will be the demander and they will criticize or nag or make a demand on the other. And then the other partner will be the withdrawer and they want to avoid confrontation. Um, they become defensive poten potentially. And then these withdrawing responses can take many forms and they can serve specific functions, including avoiding intimacy, avoiding conflict and angry withdrawal. And now if we recall from our Demon Dance Battles episode, when we looked at Pursuit Withdraw and Demand Withdraw, that we get into these dances because we feel dropped or we feel like there's a break in the attachment or we feel like our partners let us down in some way, which I think further serves to reinforce this idea, this conversation we had at the top of the episode, that it's not about the glass next to the dishwasher. It's about those much deeper things of like, I can't rely on you. You don't respect me. You don't care. You, you're not willing to do small things that help let me know that you love me and that you see me, um, which I think makes sense why it can also fuel that demand withdraw pattern as well. Um, something else to avoid is micromanaging and criticizing your partner for doing something wrong. I love to micromanage people. <laughs> Wait now. No, I'm kidding. I just, kidding. I'm not going to say I get joy out of it, but I get something out of it because I keep doing it. <laughs> um, it feels uh, more you know, like a compulsion can... than a than a joy. Yeah. Activity. Okay. Yes. It's a compulsion. Yeah, it's like a, a knee jerk I'm, I'm reaction. Right. Right. I'm working on it. I came from a very micromanaging family. Um, but you know, the result of that means that some partners may not even want to try to take on part of the labor because they fear that they're going to get chastised or get criticized. Um, and remember that. Yes, it is okay for there to be dialogue and communication. I think I've seen some people really be resistant to this of like, well, if my partner loads the dishwasher in a terrible way and I just have to deal with it and they like flood the dishwasher, like, well, how am I going to wow. deal with it? Um, that like, of course, there are ways to compassionately and graciously have those conversations. That's a great topic for the household portion of your radar, you know, or whatever, that it is okay to make requests and to talk about your reasons why maybe it's important to try doing it a particular way versus not another way, things like that. Um, and remember, micromanaging and criticizing, they are patterns that can permeate every part of someone's relationship, not just this particular arena. Yeah, the next one is to try to refrain from a system of delegating or where one person is the boss or the mom who's telling the other person what to do. Now, when we talked before about these different ways of collaborating together, and one of them was the one partner as expert whether that's in a serious way or a more joking way, that can work in a sort of a situational way, but don't rely on that to be the whole system, right? It's like if one of you, say, for example, is a chef and like that's your thing and the other person's going to help. Yeah, you could set up a system where it's like, okay, one person's the boss, you know, giving their directions to their sous chef or whatever. And maybe that's a sexy little dynamic for you. Great. But we don't want to fall into that sort of way of doing everything, right? Where one person's having to carry the whole load of telling you to do stuff. Because then also if it's the like, oh, I don't want to do this thing when it's because your partner told you to do it. And now you're like, oh, okay, that sucks. That feels really shitty for the person who had to tell you to do that thing. As opposed to it being your own responsibility and going, ah, shit, right? I just remembered I need to take out the trash. Uh, okay. Yep. I'm going to do it. Not, not saying it at you. Lisa. You didn't have to tell me to do it. It's my own thing. Does that make sense? Definitely. And we love the Gottmans. Uh, and in that spirit, try to avoid the four horsemen of the apocalypse in relationships when collaborating on tasks and asking for help. So that includes stonewalling, contempt, criticizing, and defensiveness, because those are all surefire ways the these efforts that you are putting in to try to make things more egalitarian, they will ultimately backfire if you include those things within your talks. So what did we learn today? I think we learned ultimately that maybe... 
Yes, the guy was wrong. He should have not put his glass over. Oh, I see. We're, we're back to the yeah, article. Okay, by the okay. dishwasher. But ultimately, also, the two of them should have tried to sit down and had a ra- have a radar, like figure out some ways in which to collaborate effectively with the two the two of them, the twos of them before just like throwing in the towel and being like, I'm done with this relationship. Before you get there, use these things first. Yeah. And I would say to the people on that guy's side of it, um, not knowing and not being aware of this isn't an excuse. That's why you have episodes like this one. So now you have no excuse. You know about this. Be proactive. It's going to make your partner's lives better and it's going to make your life better. Just overall, better, better, better. Yeah. More sex, more intimacy, more love. I want people's takeaway to be remember the invisible stuff. Remember the planning. Remember the mental load. You know, both if you're the person doing that, don't underestimate that. And when you're doing these exercises of figuring out what goes into the work of keeping the household afloat, remember that. And if you're the partner who tends to not take on the mental load, be aware of that. You know, think about that. Find ways that you can actually, uh, you know, uh, divide that a little bit better. Take on some of that because that's also equally important as well. And sometimes that takes some very proactive convincing of your partner to let go. (laughs) This is something that Dedeker and I have talked about before with certain things where she felt like she had to carry that mental load, even when I took on a task. And we did have to get to this point where I was like, you need to just stop it. You need to just stop. You need to just stop. Let me let me do it. I'll, I'll do it. And if it fails, like that's my problem and I'll figure out how to fix that. But like, let me take this from you so you don't have to do it. And sometimes it is hard to let go, right? So oh yeah, we, no, but now next time I'm around you, I'm just not going to, not going to think about anything. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> not going to think about anything. <laughs> You're just going to be uh, yeah, blank yeah, all mind. <laughs> That's not going to happen, Dedeker. I know you. <laughs> so we are going to talk about why some people may not want to do as many household chores as others. We've got some theories on why that might be the case. Uh, and we would love to know why... You know, you may not be doing as many chores as your partner if you've been in this scenario on either end. We'd love to hear about that. And if you've figured out a way in which to make your household chores more equal, we'd love to hear about that as well. So the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread and our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at info at multiamory.com. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Dedeker Winston, and me, Emily Matlack. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanera. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenewark and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh Nonand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com.